The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections in November. Make sure to text the word VOTER to 26797 right now to check your registration and to receive your polling location and reminders for all local, state, and federal elections in the future. Thank you. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress, social justice advocate, and humanitarian. I am Andana Dayani, an entrepreneur, attorney, and most recently the co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. Welcome to The Dissenters. So, a little backstory. Mandana and I are very close friends, and we're constantly sending each other stories of incredible people who completely blow our minds. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research to create our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Each episode, we meet one of these incredible accidental activists and learn about their journeys based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan. A dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo. In this episode, we meet our second dissenter, Amanda Wynn, the civil rights astronaut. Amanda is the CEO and founder of RISE, a non-governmental civil rights organization she founded after experiencing firsthand the broken rape survivor justice system. She was the power behind the Sexual Assault Survivors' Rights Act, one of 23 bills to pass unanimously through U.S. Congress. She's also training to become an astronaut and uses her time as an intern at NASA to inform her activism. And she was nominated for Nobel Peace Prize last year, so she's basically the coolest person we know. I mean, who are we kidding? She's not even 30 years old. (laughs) This story will completely blow you away. And now it is our greatest pleasure to introduce the incredible dissenter, Amanda Wynn, the civil rights astronaut. So we have Amanda Wynn here, the civil rights astronaut. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> this is like all our nerd dreams together. All as coming one. true. <laughs> Nobel Peace Prize nominee, fresh out of Harvard. Don't fuck this up, Deborah. I know. <laughs> okay, here we go. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm so thrilled to be here. Okay, this is like, we're friends. We just want to know everything there is to know about you and everything that you've done. So maybe anywhere, just wherever you want to start. Yeah, sure. Kind of your journey and how you got here. Well, I usually tell people, because it's true, I'm a super nerd. So my background is in astrophysics and national security. I'm an activist. I consider myself a civil rights astronaut for shorthand. (laughs) But my activism was and is still really shaped by how nerdy I am. So (laughs) my journey really started when I was at NASA. So when I was 18, I actually snuck into NASA. The internship at headquarters was for PhD students. And at 18, I was not a PhD student. But what I did was on my resume, I omitted didn't lie, but I omitted my graduation year and I moved the education part down. They accepted me. And then two months in, they figured out, wait, hold, wait, what, 
she's not a PhD student. Oh my God. So the lesson here is lie for your, I'm just kidding. The lesson here (laughs) is just go for it. Just go for it. I did that to get scholarships into college. I applied for every, I applied for like the Vietnamese scholarship, the excellence. (laughs) I like applied, I applied for every single scholarship that was available because I was like, someone's going to help me pay for school. You know, I think Harvard Business School did the study, some institution did the study where women don't apply to jobs until they feel like they're overqualified and men apply even if they're underqualified. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can we just, at the beginning of this, just say that you were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize? Can we just say that? (laughs) Okay, thanks. (laughs) Is that how you introduce yourself? Like, do you just say, hi, I'm nominated for, like how, do you wear t-shirts? Like how? Yeah, it's um, I would tattoo it on my face. Yeah, it's so it's so wild. So I actually the Nobel Committee invited me to the 2018 Peace Prize ceremony and it is literally the most beautiful thing I have ever witnessed. I do not want a wedding. I want a Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, well the thing is that it's about peace, right? And so for a moment, and I actually don't think that people in America have as much appreciation for it as it is internationally appreciated. I mean, it's it's incredible. And there was this awe of, it's not even prestige. It's of reverence for goodness and humanity. Um, um, yeah, and it's beautiful. So there's this tradition after the ceremony, after the award is given and the lectures of the Nobel laureates are given, that the entire city of Oslo comes into the front of the hotel where the laureates are and hold candles. <gasps> yeah. And so, you know, if you think about it in culture, candle lit moments are really only for, I mean, like very sad moments, but they're also wow. very powerful moments. And in this case, it's a celebration for what we could be as a humanity, shared humanity together. So it was, it's really cool. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That's incredible. Okay. Sorry, I no, had to no. interrupt that and just throw out the Nobel bomb. <laughs> just thank had you. to throw that into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> okay, but please continue. So, no, no. so NASA, yes. this is what you wanted to do with your life? Yes, and I still do. So what happened was I you know, did my internship at NASA headquarters, went back to school. And then like so many people have experienced in their life, I was raped. And that was at Harvard. Um, what year were you in? I was in my last semester, so oh. I was a senior. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I remember how difficult it was to get just basic information. I went to the hospital. I had a rape kit procedure done that most people don't know. It's three to seven hours long. Mine was six hours long. So it's both life-saving medical attention and also forensic collection of evidence because your body is the crime scene. Yeah. So it's very thorough. It can be very traumatic for some. And after that, I remember going to the lobby of the hospital. I was handed a voucher, a taxi voucher, to go back to the dorm room where I was raped. And I remember I'd never more fully understood the feeling of lonely until that very moment. And... All I could think at that moment was, well, what now? Where do I go from here? I then started researching what my rights were, and it was so hard to find out. And one of the professors at Harvard Law School helped me. And even with us combined with our resources, we couldn't figure out 
well, like, when exactly is my rape kit going to get destroyed? Why is it getting destroyed? And why are there inconsistencies all across America for this? So, for instance, we discovered in some states, survivors have to pay for their rape kits. I know, I read that. That seems Mm -hmm. insane. Re-victimization. Oh, my, absolutely. So, like, what other crime scene do you pay? Exactly. I mean, I just, like— exactly. Can you imagine like you get in a car accident yeah. and the, and you get a bill from the police? Yes. Like it just doesn't exactly. make any sense. Exactly. In some states, survivors don't get access to their medical records report from the rape kit. So, for instance, if you now have HIV AIDS, right, you should know that. Or if you have STDs or whatever, you yeah. should know that. And it's because this is why the law is really important. In HIPAA, which is the patient rights law, you're supposed to, as a human, get access to your own medical records. But because HIPAA doesn't specifically say in cases of rape or sexual assault, that's why there's gray area. And so often, if you look at the history, especially in America, laws don't actually tell us what is moral, right? Laws are decided by us as a collective Mm -hmm. coming together and saying, like, we need safeguards. But the importance of writing down laws is so that there are these safeguards, so that there is some kind of legal accountability. And that's why I decided after walking into my local area rape crisis center and seeing that the waiting room was filled and realizing, oh my gosh, if I have a Harvard Law professor helping me and and I still am struggling, what is everybody else going through? I realized at that moment that I had a choice. I could accept the injustice or I could rewrite the law. And so I rewrote it. (laughs) And I rewrote it to include all of these rights, particularly in my case in Massachusetts before my law passed, untested rape kits were destroyed at six months, even if the statute of limitations was 15 years. Which makes no sense. It makes no sense. And by the way, it doesn't make any sense for any party involved, the accused, because Mm -hmm. evidence can exonerate the accused. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense for police officers, detectives, because clearly you need evidence in order to find the truth. Why are you destroying the evidence? And so we made that case. We said, hey, this is not only for survivors, but in the interest of justice of Mm -hmm. everyone. And in 2016, we introduced a bill in the United States Congress called the Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights. In seven months, a record time, it passed unanimously in both chambers of Congress. It was the 21st bill in modern U.S. history to do so. Oh, my God. The statistic for that is 0.016%. I'm a nerd. Oh, yeah. I have 400 questions on everything you just said. No, yeah. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to answer all of them. But, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. This is such an incredible story. Rape kits for a second. Mm -hmm. Because this is something that, you know, we've know quite a bit about. And and I think we just have such a hard time. Why would anyone destroy evidence before? Like, why wouldn't they test it? Right? But why, how can you not test And because it's too expensive to test. Actually, those are really great points, and I'm so glad you brought them up because they're often myths. Why are these kids being destroyed? And the honest answer is that the law has a gender and that gender is not female. So if you look at the different crimes that are listed, so another double standard is in murder cases. Murder is also a class A violent felony like rape, but that evidence is never destroyed. That's why you solve cold cases, mm-hmm. right? So that's a double standard. Why are murder cases kept, but not rape cases? And again, the answer is because the majority of survivors, of victims of rape, are women. And because of bias, 
even when male survivors come forward, they're not believed, right? Because mm-hmm. the issue is so, so thought of as a women's issue. And also because of that bias, the crime itself isn't taken seriously. There are plenty of states that have an enormous backlog, which means that in order for there to be a backlog, that space that those thousands of kits have taken up have not dented any fiscal budget. Because if it dented somebody's budget, bottom line, you wouldn't have all these kits sitting around. Right. So they always say, okay, where are we going to delegate our money this year? And that is never problem ever a priority oh yeah oh when, yeah when the money runs out right it's fine yeah but overwhelmingly the force that is stopping us from passing these laws is just ignorance people just don't know how bad it is for rape survivors you know i cared about this issue before i became a survivor but i had no idea what kind of kafka-esque labyrinth i had to walk through in order to save my own kit from destruction <laughs> You know, I had to rewrite the law. And so I understand why people don't know. And again, it really comes back to, well, who are these laws written by and for? Mm -hmm. What made you think that you could do that? Yeah. How how did that happen? Yeah, one part is because in astro. (laughs) Yeah. Again, so a lot of people ask me like, astrophysics and government, how are they related? You know, mm-hmm. and, and to me, I think they answer the same questions. You know, when I wake up, the burning questions that I have is, what is my place in the universe and what am I going to do about it? And I think that fighting for what I believe in and imagining a better world is just that. So when astronauts go into space for the first time, many of them encounter this phenomenon called the overview effect. So the overview effect written in psychiatric literature is basically an existential crisis that humans have when they see Earth for the first time. It's everything that's ever lived or died on this pale blue dot, right? And and you see instantly that we are all in this spaceship on this rock together. Like, why are we fighting each other? And on top of that, you also see, well, how fragile the Earth is, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, so many astronauts leave Earth as technicians but return to Earth as humanitarians, profoundly moved to do a lot of social justice. And so back to your question, which is like, what made me think of it? One part is because in astrophysics, we are basically coded to think about a better world. And like, how are we going to get to that better world? You know, what are the technical steps from here to there? So naturally, rewriting the law was one of them. (laughs) And the other part is... Honestly, because my parents are boat refugees from Vietnam, you know, and so they they came to America and reminded me that freedom isn't free, that you have to keep fighting for it, Mm. you know, that that line is something that no one should ever take for granted. But the fact that we are here means that we have the ability to petition the government. It's our constitutional right. And so we should use it. So did you work with the law professor? Yes, at first. Yes. Yeah. She helped me find a group of law students, and then we all collectively worked on the first draft. The first draft was for the Massachusetts state. I remember actually November 1st, 2014. That's when I sent out an email to everyone I knew. And I said, please walk with me. Please help me write this law. And originally, again, it was only for Massachusetts. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And then it just to Were you, the United States Congress. Because you, after school, went to work for the Obama administration. Yes. Were you working there when you were working on the Massachusetts yes. law also? Yeah, so I did two things <laughs> okay. Wow. at the same time. And actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the reasons why I ended up 
needing to write this law is because the rape kit preservation in Massachusetts is, again, only for six months. And I remember talking to different attorneys, and they said, to be very honest with you, Amanda, most rape cases take two to three years. And you have to be back in Massachusetts in order to testify because you were a witness to this, this, mm-hmm. you know, this trial to this case. And at that point, the Obama administration had offered me my dream job. I wanted to serve my country, but the president was only going to be in office for like two more years. And I had to make a choice that no one should make, which is justice or your career. And I chose my career. And because I did, I wasn't able to prosecute immediately Mm-hmm. or move forward immediately. But what gave me the option to do that was having a longer statute of limitations, mm-hmm. which is necessary because what that recognizes is that in moments of trauma, sometimes survivors need time to process before they're able to come back. Mm-hmm. And two, that this kit could be held. But the problem was that it only could be held for six months. And that's when I had to come back and try to fight for my evidence to retain it. After the second time that I had to fight for it, I said, this is it. This, I'm going to change the law. This is unacceptable. Wow. <laughs> so so um, you had to come back every six months. And fight for it. And extend it by six months. That's right. And there was no formal process to do that. So one thing that I grew up in this country believing is that we all, no matter where we are from, have equal access to the law, equality under the law. And as I started researching these rights, I realized, wow, that is so not true. Not only do rights vary so drastically for rape survivors from state to state, they Mm -hmm. can even vary drastically from county to county. Wow. Mm -hmm. So that's why our journey at RISE, it really started after President Obama signed the federal law. And because most rape cases are adjudicated in state courts, that's why we still have to pass these rights state by state. But we started our campaign or focused really mainly on the federal one at first because of our strategy around what's called the Frank Sinatra test. If I can make it in New York, I can make it anywhere. Uh (laughs) um, For us, it was, if I can make it in Congress, this body that the media, that the public would understand. And if it was able to pass in such hyper-partisan times, then we could pass it everywhere. And that has worked for us. So, so much as we've observed in our time passing these laws, we've passed 29 laws, by the way. Wow. 29. I I read 27. I didn't know it was 29. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two more just us. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Um, Yeah. And our average is a law a month. And there are unanimous laws. Unanimous. We actually have America's most efficient legislative reform movement in modern history. And it's not because rape is an easy issue. No, or, no, no it's, not at all. Again, Kavanaugh or, you know, the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, all of these things mm-hmm. are very difficult. It's in large part because of the way that we've been able to strategize and also the enormous effort that each of our organizers on the ground have put into coalition building, which are very difficult things, but so necessary in these moments. And again, they're very difficult. So what I mean by that is, We don't go into a state unless someone from that community has reached out to us. And often that's because of moments like the media. So Mm -hmm. when President Obama signed it, they heard about it and they said, oh my gosh, I've been going through this too. And they reached out to us and said, can you help me pen my own rights into existence too? Right? That's when we go in. And I don't believe in being a voice for the voiceless. I believe in passing the mic. 
So there are people who are on the ground who know the solutions to the world's most difficult problems because they live that problem every day. The problem really is about this knowledge gap and and accessibility. In Washington, there's a profit model for lobbying, which is for a premium, you can pay these people who have connections and they Mm -hmm. connect you, maybe something will work out. But what that means is that democracy then becomes for the highest bidder. Is that democracy after all? No. So, yeah. So, our whole thing at Rise and the secret to our success is truly believing in access to democracy, which is empowering the people in the community directly. So what we do is we set up the campaign around them and train them on the ground, you know, teach them civics, train them how to testify. And then at the end, they're there next to the governor getting their civil rights being signed. We actually this is the, the incubator now. This is yes. this is out of the incubator that you guys yeah have created. so so your federal law that mm-hmm. you passed so is that now the boilerplate yes. for every other state wanting that's to correct. customize it to their state absolutely that's exactly it but so how much, did you come up with the bill of rights yeah that's a great question the way that we came up with it is by looking at what in the United States had legal precedence already that was our argument that, hey, the state has already done it. It's working for their community. It can work for other communities too. And to be very honest with you, it was a really tough battle to keep, obviously, some of these rights on. In the very beginning, there were people who asked us to take rights off. And this is part of the very difficult part of organizing, which is compromise. Yeah. So let me just give you an example. Please. I feel safe saying this now because we've passed 29 laws, but actually in the beginning of RISE, I wouldn't have said this, which is our federal law originally in the bill had emergency contraception for rape survivors. And there were several people who did not support this. And they said that they would hold up the entire bill for this. There are other rights in the bill. So for instance, the right to have access to your own medical records, the right to be notified of your rights because of how varying mm-hmm. they are. It's very important to know information, knowledge is power, the right to not have your evidence be destroyed before the statute of limitations. Yeah. So we said, we made a very tough decision to say, okay, we will compromise. We'll take that right off. And that's how the bill passed. But here's the thing. In the subsequent 28 laws that have passed since then, it was put back in. And so for us, our biggest critique is something I completely own. And the critique is that we're not radical enough, that we don't hold the line for all of it. And for me, I completely understand where people come with that, but also change is incremental. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we build upon that foundation. And since then, again, with these other laws that have passed, emergency contraception has been put back in. First of all, bowing down to you because that was that's amazing and I, I you know it's funny we have this conversation quite a bit because we're both friends with Shannon Watts and we speak to her all the time about gun reform and she always talks about incremental change mm-hmm. and you're kind of seeing it now in the political landscape of all these different Democrats that are running for office which is these purity tests of yep. if it's not the most progressive version mm-hmm. of something then it doesn't count yeah and yes yeah and I completely agree with you that if you don't build the foundation, then you have nothing to build on. Yeah. So would you rather have nothing right. or something? And it's the way you articulate it. It just makes it seem so obvious and so clear. And it's just such an incredible example for how we have to evolve and make progress, right? We talk about gay marriage. We talk mm-hmm. about all of these other things that have happened. And they've all happened like this. It was always all civil rights were incremental. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I didn't have the political luxury of a cathartic performance. I literally had a timeline on my justice, which was six months. 
So that's in large part what drove me to build the culture of our campaigns in the way that I did, which is we need to do this and we need to get people right now in this moment to come together. Because if we don't, then literal lives will have their justice just gone. But that's also what I was alluding to earlier, the very difficult part of organizing, which is to climb over these empathy walls and sit in these very uncomfortable spaces Mm. and talk to people who do not agree with us and to see their humanity when they don't see their humanity in us. It is an incredibly difficult job. How did you do that? How? Like, how do people do that? Because, I mean, by the way, like, it, it is too polarized right now. It like, is. everyone is just so mad at the other side. And yeah. I don't want, I mean, I find it so toxic. Yeah. And I know you and do. Exhausting. And everyone does. Exa- and yeah. I, it's, yes. Yes, exhausting. And it's just like, how how do we do this? Please help us. The overview <laughs> effect. It's coming back to that, right? When these astronauts look at Earth, all of these small, and then they might not be small, but all of these arguments in the grand scheme of life in the universe, it does actually put things in perspective. Mm -hmm. It's what they also call the orbital perspective. And if we take a step back and we're able to examine it, maybe we can think a little more clearly. And it's like this in relationships too. So I created a theory of organizing called Hopeonomics. Nice. Oh, um, so cool. Thank you. So part of it is gamification. So we literally broke down the levels of passing a law so that it's incremental. So that when a new person, it doesn't matter if they have any background whatsoever in politics, but they are part of this nation, so they should have access to democracy. So anyone can join the game. And they're paired up with a coach. A coach is a former riser. So a riser is what we affectionately call our organizers. A former riser that won their game. So they went to the governor's desk, got assigned it to law. Mm. Those people come back to the game as coaches. As mentors. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Because they were just there too. And so these coaches and these risers then move through the levels. There's a couple aspects of gaming. One is that you're never given more than you can handle. You skills build along the way, right? So you go through a series of smaller bosses before you get to the big boss, right? And that's how we develop these skills. So I read that you guys spent 14 hours standing, talking to anybody Mm -hmm. who would walk by you. Yeah, yeah. Is that essentially what you did? Or did you make appointments with legislators? That's the Massachusetts law. That's the first law. Well, when we started, nobody would give us the light of day. Right. Um, And the 14 hours that you're referring to is... The day that the Massachusetts State House was going to close. So it was do or die on that day. Either the bill would be brought up and would pass or it wouldn't and we'd have to start all over again. And I was living in D.C. and I was at the airport when I got a call from one of my policy advisors that said the speaker's not going to bring it up. And I didn't even know if I should get on the plane. I was crying. I was bawling my eyes out in the airport. These are my own civil rights. And it was survivors who said to me, get on that plane and go and just stand there. Stand there, be present, show up. And let them each walk out of the state house and see that you were there and see what they have done and Mm -hmm. reckon with that. Mm -hmm. I was the last person on that plane. And when I got there, even our lead sponsors were like, we're so sorry. But for 14 straight hours that day, we went into every single room that we could to hear 
what senators were thinking and to share our story. We asked people to call in. I literally witnessed those calls coming into the speaker's office. The secretary was very annoyed. (laughs) But at the end of those 14 hours, the speaker brought it up and it passed. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So organizing works. It's amazing because when we wanted to start this podcast, it really came out of this desire to show people that everyone can do more, right? Like there's no, like, you don't go to school to be an activist or to create meaningful change. Like no one knows necessarily that they're going to take that path. And hearing your story, it's like you didn't have formal training in any of this, Mm -hmm. but that this passion and this desire to make meaningful change just guided you. And it's so cool that you navigated this, which is so, that people that do this for a living cannot (laughs) in any way figure out how to navigate Yeah. Well, actually, the thing that I'm most proud of isn't that I was the one that did this, right? It's that our organizers, the 200 survivors on the ground, they've repeated this process. So when I said there's 29 laws, I really don't mean that I've written all of them. You know, these 29 laws are inclusive of all of the risers on the ground who Mm -hmm. passed them. Mm -hmm. And what that means to me is that change, this hoponomics, That is scalable, and it's scalable to other issues, too. And that's why at RISE, our newest phase is an accelerator for civil rights. We actually call it School of Hope. So it's Oh, um, that's cool. Thanks. In Silicon Valley or in the world of tech, if you're an entrepreneur, based on the merit of your idea, you can apply to these tech accelerators like Y Combinator, 500 Startups, etc. And what they'll do if they accept you is they'll give you seed funding— And for a fixed amount of time, like four months, they will give you mentorship, right? Mm. So basically what it does is it lowers your barrier to entry into a market, right? And that doesn't exist for civil rights until now. So what we do, we call it Rise Justice Labs. That's the accelerator name. We split it up to two parts. So it's six months overall. The first three months is called School of Hope, where we'll teach you civics. And then the second part is we'll campaign and help you pass your first law. And the whole point here is, again, back to our principle that the people who know the solutions to the world's most pressing problems are the people who live that problem every day. So why not just literally give those people resources and mentorship? So for folks who apply, if you're accepted, we'll give you $50,000. So when you started your group, everyone was just volunteering, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And now— are people on the payroll? Is it mostly yes. volunteer? Where are you getting the money from to yeah. give to these startup? Yeah, it's been a journey yeah. that. <laughs> because again, I grew up in a refugee family with nothing, literally the clothes on their backs when they started. So in the beginning, it was all volunteers. And then after President Obama signed the federal law, mm-hmm. we heard from over a million people around the world saying that they needed these rights too. Again, hope is so powerful. Yeah. Representation means that when they see it, they believe it. And that's not only in our own identity, but it's also in rights getting passed, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God, that is so, so powerful. And so at that moment, I realized that there was an actual chance to really create change. And so I took a leap. I quit the administration. (laughs) I'm very grateful to... Well, one to President Obama, who wrote me a very nice letter, even a quit. Who gets to do that? Quit and have your boss say, you're you're okay. But to the rest of the team, too. And started working full time. So we have at RISE headquarters in D.C. staff on payroll. So those are the people who really help architect. Those are like the coaches 
And then we have our network of volunteers. And then I learned about philanthropy, which are these foundations. Mm. And actually, for anyone out there who has an idea, who is an activist, an organizer, and they want to create change, I had to learn from bottom up about these philanthropies, that there's so much capital out there. And for us, Demo Day stands for Democracy Day. So we have our organizers stand up in front of both donors, senators, members of Congress, and critically artists, which I actually really want to talk about, and talk about the change that they've created for their world. God, that's amazing. Democracy Day, Demo Day. My favorite day ever. <laughs> well, these, I mean, voting day is my favorite day ever, but this yes. is now my second favorite day ever. <laughs> what day is Demo Day? We're currently working that out right now, but okay. I will definitely like let you know. us know oh when so that excited. is. Please come. Can we come? Of course. Really? The whole point. Yeah, it's a celebration of democracy. Oh my god. Okay, We're tell there. us about art. Oh yes, change for us is not only about legal change; it's also about cultural change, and yes. that was that was so apparent to me. And it came from well, I want to be an astronaut still. Mm -hmm. That's why everything at Rise is meant to be as accessible, as scalable as possible, so that if other people can do it better than me, I'm going to space. (laughs) Um, And so so awesome. uh, Thanks. And I want survivors, especially, to hear this too. And just really everyone who wants to become an activist, you don't have to give up your dreams in order to fight for what you care about. You can absolutely do both. Then I can be a civil rights astronaut and love fashion. You know, like we are multitudes, we're complex. But even beyond that, I want especially young women to know that you get to define your own story. You are the own narrator of your own story. And this is really important for people to understand because so often women are seen as unreliable narrators of their own story. And when I tried to figure out after these laws have passed, well, like, who am I? You know, and I think that everyone, regardless of your gender or what you identify mm-hmm. as, goes through this. Now, I realize, wait, hold up a second. There's no one that, that really looks like me <laughs> in these spaces. So, you know what? I'm just going to create that story. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I want to go to school. You should. I want Hopeonomics. Yay! Me too. Come, come to school of hope. Like I wanted to be <laughs> let's, let's, let's write a law. Yeah. <laughs> totally. You can. Yeah. How do people access Hopeonomics? Yes. So if you go to Mm risenow.us, you can apply. And the curriculum is already up there. So there's a bridge version of it. But you also can just come to Rise. And when you apply, it's for the accelerator, Rise Justice Lab. So if you're accepted, the um, $50,000 will come. Yeah. How do you shape narrative? Oh, that's a great question. People respond to individual stories. Because they, first of all, people think that they're the hero of their own story, which is correct, because they are. They're living their own life. And in sociology literature, it's called the Mother Teresa effect. So if you talk about one child versus a million, Mm -hmm. people will relate to that one child more. So Mm -hmm. movements need a face. And narrative building is about creating this authenticness, this authenticness. People really relate to other things that they think aren't curated. Do they just want a connection? I read a little bit about statements you had made about how the media depicts sexual violence and why that's important to you. Can you maybe elaborate on some of your positions with that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's really important that the media is talking about this. Dialogue is really critical. I also think it's really important to not objectify 
survivors mm-hmm. um, and that there needs to be a trauma-informed way to talk about these things. Ultimately, I think that both the news and you know, the entertainment industry is making large strides in listening to survivors mm-hmm. tell their stories. Grey's Anatomy actually did a, an episode recently on a rape kit, and it brought so much attention. And one of their writers actually reached out to us and said, hey, you know, this episode would not have been created had your law not passed. Because in the episode, they go over what your rights are. No way! Yeah. 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 Is that a crazy moment for you? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ah, That's amazing. Yeah. And I just— if we look back, if I look back, like, from the very beginning, I would have no idea, right, that this um, this would be the journey. But I really want people to know that they already have it in them to change the world. First of all, it's your constitutional right. Yes. You know, I, I actually think that we've all been gaslit to forget our power. Yeah. Because a lot of people feel like, oh, well, like, this powerful, hallowed space in Congress. Right. Like, I'm nervous going in. Yeah. <laughs> When I go in, it's, you're working for me. (laughs) Totally. You say this all the time. Um, Yeah. I say this all the time. Yeah. And they're accountable to us. So it's their job to literally listen to our voices. And the most powerful tool we have is our voice. That's why I'm using mine to fight for these rights and trying to scale it to other issues too. But that's why I encourage everyone to really use it to fight for what they care about. I mean, what you have done is so extraordinary And I just know that our listeners are having the same response that, you know, here you had no idea that you would end up here, that you would have such an impact on lives all around the globe. And that could be any of us. That's what's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. I'm also a fashion obsessed, crazy person. Ah! And it was always weird because I was in law school and I was crazy. And I love meeting other nerds who love fashion. Did you always love fashion? Yeah, I love fashion. Since um, childhood? Yes. I think fashion is just another way to express yourself. Mm-hmm. It was my most like creative outlet, oh, I guess, awesome. in my life because so everything great. else was so like books and studying. and. Yeah. The fashion community has been so, so supportive. And we are so grateful to designers and really to the entire industry for wanting to say that It doesn't matter what it is you're wearing. If you're a survivor, you deserve dignity because I want people to know that you can be yourself. You can exist in all of these spaces and be authentic and true and and proud of your heritage and an American and love fashion, wear lipstick and be an activist, all the things. (laughs) Amen. Oh my God, that was the best response Amanda, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and inspiring us and our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. Everyone follow Amanda. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in. And please join us next week as we completely lose our minds trying to keep it cool in conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff.
We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell. <laughs>